Good morning. We're going to give them just a moment before we read the word. The scripture from today is from Psalm 20. David writes, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They will collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lynn. So for those of you who have been with us, I'm going to kick this, so I'm going to move it back. So for those of you who've been with us uh, for the last almost year, you know we've been in the book of Luke, but for the summer we decided, well I decided, that we would take a break from the book of Luke and that we would just do a, a summer series on the life of David. But as is typical of me when I start to dig in, we can't start with David, we have to go back. And so we began last week Uh, by looking at three key scriptures that really set up the reign of Saul. And today we're going to be talking about King Saul. So uh, uh, the reason I had uh, uh, Lynn read that passage from from, uh, Psalm 20 is that part about trusting in chariots and in horses. And what we're going to see as we look at Saul is that Saul has a vision problem. Saul continually relies on his eyes. And one of the things that God wants us to do as his people is quit relying so much on what we see. Instead, he wants us to have a heart more like David's, which we'll get to next week, who trusts him despite what he sees. So as we go through uh, the the passages today, and and as we look at the life of of Saul and, and his reign before David is anointed in chapter 16, um, I want you to see how often the concept of seeing comes up. Now, the reason this is important is because of those three passages we looked at last week. Last week, we talked about Judges chapter 2, and we spent some time in that passage talking about how God's people did not follow God's ways after Joshua and his generation passed away. And that each generation, or every now and then, the people would get increasingly more wicked, and God would send a judge, and that judge would deliver them from their enemies and kind of lead a revival. 
and then that judge would die, and then what would happen? The people would end up worse off than they were before the judge came. And we saw this cycle happen over and over again till we get to the last verse in the book of Judges. And the last verse in the book of Judges says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own what? eyes. And so what I want us to see is this idea of doing what's right in your own eyes continues into the, the book of 1 Samuel. So last week we saw this cycle of rebellion and deliverance come to a climax under the prophet Samuel, who would end up being the last judge. And that's when we came to the second major scripture from last week as we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 8. And in that passage we saw how the people were asking for a, a king just like all the other nations. But that's not what God wanted. God did not want them to have a king like all other nations. But as we looked last week, we come to the third major scripture we looked at, which was from Deuteronomy 17. And what we saw is that Deuteronomy 17 tells us that, that God wants a king over his people who trusts him leads his people in his word and helps them be more like him. God tells his people that a king should not trust in three things. And we looked at these last week. A king should not trust in power, should not trust in wealth, or in pleasure. Rather, a king that God sets up should trust in the Lord and lead his people to trust the Lord through his example as king and also through his, the way he rules, the way he leads and the, the decrees that he sets forth. But what we see is that God's people were not interested in doing things God's way. We see that, that God's people rejected God. And that's what the Lord says to Samuel, right? He said, they've not rejected you as judge, they have rejected me. So they wanted a king that would make them like all other nations. And so that's exactly what God did. He, he gave his people a king that, that met their desires. He gave them a, a king who was the son of a rich man, a king who was handsome, and a king who was a head taller than anybody else. It was a king that would fit any other nation. So what we're going to see today as we look at the reign of King Saul is that God prepares Saul for success. He sets him up for success. He gives him every opportunity. And yet, what does Saul do? Saul does what was right in his own eyes. Now, what's fascinating is I began to unpack this this week and reflect on and think on what God did for his people. I, I thought of the Exodus. And when God called his people out of Egypt, what did God do so that they would know who was in control and that God was in it? Well, he sent them signs, right? He sent them signs like the ten plagues. He sent them signs like uh, uh, feeding them in the wilderness, like parting the Red Sea so they could, part the, so they could walk through it. Sent them signs like manna from heaven and, and, and uh, water from places it shouldn't come from. I mean, he was pretty clear in the signs that he gave him. What we're going to see is, similarly, God gave Saul signs so that he could see 
All right, hey, I can think back and remember. So as you go throughout the story of, of the Israelites wandering around and you look through Exodus and you look through Numbers and Deuteronomy, you constantly see uh, God saying things like, I'm doing this so that you can remember, so that you can remember, so that you can remember, so that you can remember. And what do we see? The people forget. Similarly, God sets Saul up for success with these signs so that, they, so that he can remember. And yet, he forgets. The other thing that God does for the people of Israel is, after he's called them out of Egypt, he gives them victory. Victory over Egypt. Victory over his, their enemies in the wilderness. And, yet, and what we're going to see in the life of Saul is that God gives him victory. Gives him an opportunity to win. Another chance for him to see God's hand at work. And in the, in the life of, of the Israelites as they come out of Egypt, God gives them his spiritual presence. He does this through Moses. He does this through Aaron. And he does it by uh, the pillar of uh, clouds by day and the pillar of fire by night. He shows his presence. Similarly, we're going to see in the life of Saul that God gives him his presence. But just like that wasn't enough for the Israelites, it's not enough for Saul either. He has all the information he needs to follow and follow well. But this is the king that they wanted. This is the king to make them like all the other nations. And so they get a king with a vision problem. And as we move through the story this week and next week as we look at David, we're going to see this routinely. That we do not want to have the eyes of Saul. Instead, we want to have a heart like David. We do not want to have the eyes of Saul. We want to have a heart like David. And you can, help, you can thank my friend Nate, who was in town this weekend, who helped me put all that together as we talked through things. He, he said to me, yeah, you don't want to have the eyes of Saul. You're going to have the heart of David. So I'm going to write that down, and I'm going to give you credit tomorrow uh, as we, we talk about that. Okay, so here's what I want to do as, as we go through this. Guys, we're going to cover between 175 and 200 verses today, so buckle in, okay? We're going to move fast, but don't you worry. We're not going to read it all. We're going to be skimming over it. But as we cover really chapters uh, 9 through 15, I want you to be able to read that at home. So what did we cover this week? Chapters 9 through 15 of 1 Samuel. Okay, uh, we're, I want us to start with the end. I want you to see where this heads as we look back through the story of Saul. So I, I want us to begin with the end where Sam, uh, Saul has failed. We're going to look at Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, verse 10. It says this, The word of the Lord came to Samuel. And remember, Samuel is the prophet who's leading the people. He's the last judge. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And at the close of chapter 15, we have this in verse 35. It says, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. Now right in the middle of that, uh, we have this passage, and I think that this, uh, this helps us understand that word regret. So let's, let's look at this real quick in uh, verse 28 and 29. 
It says, And Samuel said to him, and that him here is Saul, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel, and that's a title for God, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. All right. Church, as we, we think about the life of King David, which again, we're going to really get into next week, you have to understand something. David is not plan B. David was plan A. He was plan A. Now we see this word regret, and in our human mind we say, God made a mistake. Okay, so since God made a mistake, he, has, he wishes he would have done it differently. That's not really what's going on here, okay? So the ESV uses the same word regret in verse 11, verse 29, and verse 35. Okay, in the Hebrew, it's the same word in verse 11 and verse 35, but it's a different word in verse 29. Now, I think the ESV uses the same English word to help us see the connection, all right? But the other English translation, so if you're sitting there with an NIV or a New American Standard or something like that, you might see a different word other than this word regret in verse 29. All right, so the word regret in verse 29 can also be repent or relent or change his mind. Okay, so, so when we look at it like that, we can see that, that God's regret doesn't mean he wants a do-over. That's important. God is not looking for or asking for a do-over. Saul was the king that they wanted, and they got it, and he failed, and he knew he was going to fail. So when we see this word regret, it's not that God changed his mind and said, uh-oh, what to do, plan B. This guy was always going to fail. He was always going to fail, which is going to reveal the people's heart and their problem for where their eyes were because they were constantly looking at the wrong thing. And Saul is the example of what happens when we set our eyes on the wrong thing. These people got what they asked for. They got what they deserved and they experienced the turmoil, we talked about this last week as we looked at Romans 1, of being turned over to the things that they desired. So God is not changing his mind, saying that was plan A, let's pivot to plan B. This word regret and this idea here of what he's going through is God is going to intervene. He's going to act. He's going to save the people from their own dumb mistake again. Praise God, that's what he does, Amen. Oh, man, I'm so thankful he saves me from my same dumb mistakes that I do over and over again. So let's, let's jump into the life of Saul by looking at how God sets him up for success and gave him every opportunity to be the kind of king that's described in Deuteronomy 17. All right, so in, in 1 Samuel chapter 10, Saul is not yet king. Okay, so he's on this journey to, uh, to find his dad's lost donkeys. His dad's donkeys get away, and he's been sent to go find him. And he can't find him, and his travels bring him to Samuel. And the Lord has told Samuel that Saul's going to be coming, and that Saul was going to be the king that the people asked for. So Saul and Samuel hadn't met at this point, but once he arrives, Samuel tells Saul he's going to be king. Right? And Samuel tells Saul how he will know that God has indeed anointed him to be king. So Samuel gives him signs by telling him that he's going to meet a man from his father and that that, that man from his father is going to have some items and that he's going to share those items with him. 
And Samuel also tells him that he'll run into some, some prophets. And when he runs into these prophets, he's going to prophesy with them, and the Spirit of God's going to come on him. So I want you to see this. He's giving him signs. He's saying, I want you to know that just like God gave signs to Moses, just like God gave signs to the people of Israel, he's giving you signs so that you can know that I'm in this. So let's take a look and see what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 6 through 7. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. I mean, he couldn't have said it any more plain. This is what's going to happen. When it does, it's a sign to you. You'll know to obey. You'll know what to do. Go do it. All right, let's look at verses 9 and 10. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. You see that? He's working in him. He's giving him an opportunity. And all these signs come to, came to pass that day. It happened. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. Among them. So not only does he have signs, he has the Spirit of God come on him in a tangible way. He's saying, I am with you. So he gives him another heart, he sends his Spirit on him, and he prophesies. This is a big deal. This, this is stuff he should be able to plainly see. How many of us would love some signs like this? Can I get an amen? Woo! Faith would be a whole lot easier with those kinds of signs. All right, as the chapters go on, we see that all Samuel said would happen comes true. All right, so God gave him a new heart. The Spirit of the Lord is on him. Everything. God is equipping him for success. Now, chapter 10 continues to move uh, in, in the calling of Saul from this being like a private affair just between Saul and Samuel where Samuel anoints Saul's head in private and now this becomes a public event for all of Israel where God selected Saul from all the people. This is important. All right, so it's, it's not something that happens privately. He doesn't like, okay, now I have to go seize the kingdom. In addition to being privately anointed, God publicly gives the kingdom to Saul. So that everybody knows. He doesn't have to declare himself king. He gets to uh, be declared king. All right, now listen to how, how just a couple verses here we're going to read in Psalm, uh, 1 Samuel 10, verse 26. It says, Saul also, Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts uh, God had touched. So not only did God select him through uh, casting lots, he sent people around him or who were going to help him establish his kingdom. Men of valor, God is drawn to Saul. So he, again, what are we seeing here? He's setting him up for success. He's publicly selected him. He's given him men who, of valor who will be with him. And then what do we see happen? Now we see that the Philistines in the area, the enemies who are opposing God's people, uh, have, have gotten stronger and stronger, and they come out, and they are opposing one of the cities of God's people. And these people say, we need help. So they call out to help before they're destroyed. And let's see what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 11. Now behold, Saul was coming from, from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what's wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. You see, again, we see the, the Spirit filling him 
when he heard these words, all right, and these words are that the, the Philistines are opposing another city, and his anger was greatly kindled, he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. So what's now God doing? He's unifying, unifying the people behind Saul. Are we seeing how active God is in this process? All right, in Samuel chapter uh, 11, verse 11 says that Saul had such a victory over the Philistines, such a victory over the Philistines, they were so destroyed that no two Philistines fled the battlefield together. They were so utterly destroyed that in the chaos, everybody went in its own direction. They were totally disorganized and totally destroyed. So what do we see now? Just like God gave his people victory, God gave Saul victory. And this victory becomes the linchpin of Saul's kingdom. He's unified the people. He's gone out. He's had great victory and battle. And now the people are ready to say, yeah, not only is this guy our king in name, we're ready to follow him. He's won a great victory. We're all in. Here is our king. So from this point, Samuel, who's been the judge of God's people, decides to hand the leadership of the nation over to Saul. And he gives the people, Samuel does, he gives the people and Saul a sort of a farewell address in chapter 12, uh, a goodbye, if you will, from being their judge. And in this address, he gives Saul and the people a warning. Now, listen to this warning. You'd think a warning like this had to have been written after the fact. But this is right at the, the height of his success. We see Samuel give this warning, starting in chapter 12, verses 13 through 15. And now, behold, the king whom, who? You have chosen. And now, behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now that's a pretty heavy passage there, isn't it? Saul was anointed by God. But this passage says something very important. It says that it was clear that this was the king that the people wanted. Do you see that? I think that's so huge for us. Samuel says, behold the king you have chosen. Samuel says, in a sense, even though, remember what we talked about earlier, God says, it's not you, they've rejected Samuel, it's me. All right. Even though they've rejected God and wanted this king, God says, if you'll just follow me, if the king will just follow me, then it's going to be well. I'm here. I'm with you. Do you see this? He's giving it every opportunity to succeed, even though you've rejected me. If you'll follow me, and this is really the thing, I'm here. I'm with you. I'm not going to leave you. But how does Samuel conclude this address in verse 25? 
But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Man, that warning is very ominous. Because even as we have seen the overwhelming evidence that God set Saul up and Israel up to follow him, you can see throughout the whole story the foreshadowing of Saul's fall from the very beginning. You can see that both Saul and the people valued the way things looked from the outside more than actually experiencing the power of God that comes from following him and obeying him. Saul's problem is that he cares way too much about what the people think. And the people's problem is that they don't value the things that God values. Instead, what we see is that the people value the appearance of things over substance. And that should be a warning to us. It's not just about what's on the outside, it's about what's on the inside that really counts, right? Isn't that what we learned, right? Don't judge a book by its cover, all these things. Where does this come from? Right here. This idea here that, that these, the peop, God's people had rejected what God values. Instead, they just want to uh, uh, evaluate things by their outside appearance. So what I want to do for the next few minutes is go back through what we've seen so far and, and all this way that he was set up for success. And let's see how both Saul and the people missed what God had for them. I want you to see through moving through these passages the way they missed it from the very beginning. So in chapter 10, when Saul was selected from among all the tribes and clans, and the people began to look for Saul because he's been the one that was selected as king. They couldn't find him. They, they were looking for him and they couldn't find him. And it turns out that according to verse 22, Saul was hiding from the people. He was hiding with the baggage. He was, he was, he was, he was missing, all right? And previously, before the tribes come together, Saul had a conversation with a family member uh, about all that had happened to him while he was looking for the donkeys. And what's interesting is, as he talks to this family member, he never mentions what happens between him and Samuel. Now, you might think that this sounds humble. You might think that this sounds like a guy who doesn't want to boast about a situation. But as we move through the whole story of Saul, you're going to see something. This is not humility that's at play. This is insecurity. This is insecurity. He's not trusting in God. His eyes aren't on the Lord. We're going to see that next week. I wasn't going to put this in here, but when we look at David and Goliath, okay, we see the exact flip of what happens here. Okay? David doesn't care the way things look on the outside. He knows what the Lord has called him to. He has a heart like God. But Saul has, has bad vision. And so in his eyes, he's incredibly insecure. So what's he do? He's like, I can't tell my family member that he's anointed me to be king. That's ridiculous. That's never going to happen. I'm not actually going to be king. And then when they call him to be king, where is he? He's hiding because he's relying on his own strength. He's incredibly insecure. He's not trusting in the Lord. And so the only reason we see all this success and all this victory is because the Lord is putting him in positions to succeed over and over again. It's God saying, all right, you're the guy. You're the guy. Well, I'm going I'm to equip you. I'm going to make this happen. Now listen to this. 
Listen to chapter 10, verse 24, when they finally find Saul and they bring him up and present him to the people. Listen to Samuel's words. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see? Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among the people. And the people shouted, Long live the king. That little word is so heavy. He's saying, look, this is what you guys want. Something that looks pretty. Ta-da! That word see is so important. The people are only looking at the outside. So Samuel emphasizes that there's no one like Saul on the outside. And as we see in David, we're going to see that there is a difference between the way things look and the heart on the inside. So at this point in the reign of Saul, things really pick up. And God blesses Saul, and and he has several important victories, and God solidifies and unifies the people under Saul. Then chapter 12 is Samuel's uh, warning about following God and obeying him. Things are looking good. But come to chapter 13. And chapter 13 happens. The Philistines have had enough of this new king. They said, that's enough. I'm done. And the Philistines then rally this huge army, huge army, and they decide we're going to flatten these guys. Okay, and so then Saul musters up his army, and the Israelites are vastly outnumbered. Have we read this before? I mean, just think through the book of Judges. Think through the people uh, uh, in in Deuteronomy and Exodus. Have we seen this before, where God's people are vastly outnumbered? And what begins to happen as as this, this situation is perilous for God's people We see this in in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 6 and 7. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Man, things looked grim. Things looked dire. And what was the response of the people? Run and hide. Their response was fear. These people feared their enemy more than they feared God. They forgot who brought them out of Egypt. They forgot who defeated their enemies in the wilderness. They forgot about the story of Jericho. They looked at the Philistines and they ran. And they looked at their leader and he was not exactly a symbol of steadfast hope in the Lord. So Saul started to look around and and he was already outnumbered and the, the odds were already long against him and panic starts to set in but Saul knew that he couldn't go to battle without God on his side so so Samuel was supposed to come and offer sacrifice however Samuel was running late and Saul panicked all the people were fleeing and he knew he could never win this battle if he didn't have his soldiers he was already outnumbered now again i just want you to think about the story of Gideon okay they were already outnumbered And now the people are leaving. And Saul panics. He doesn't like the way things look. So what's he do? He does what's right in his own eyes. Are you guys seeing this? How this folds out? 
listen to what happens in 1 Samuel 13, starting in verse 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, look, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I, I forced myself. I love that. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. What he really means is I panicked. I panicked and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Man, that's so intense. Saul, Saul the people were, living, were leaving him and he forced himself to offer the sacrifice. Scripture is telling us that his motivation was all wrong. He was trying to, to strike while he still had his forces in hand. He was trying to cling to outward strength of human armies. And by doing that, he proved that he was not a man after God's own heart. He proved that he didn't have faith. He proved that it was about what he could see and not who he believed in. It was all about what was outward. So remember the, uh, the, the opening psalm that, that Lynn read for us. What did we see in Psalm 20? Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. But King David says, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And Saul missed it. He missed it. His biggest problem is that he keeps trusting in things that he can see. Now, time won't let us read it all today, but the rest of the chapter, just, just read chapter 14 on your own, God still saves his people. But guess how many people he uses to turn the battle? Two. Two. Just Jonathan and his shield bearer. That's it. God uses two to deliver his people. Who gets the glory for that? God does. Is that about what you can see? No, that is about the power and the faithfulness of God. Church, where does our hope come from? Our hope comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Not in the strength of chariots. Not in the strength of horses. And Saul just get it through his head. And neither can we. Man, it's so easy to point and say, look what he did. He missed it. He missed it. But man, we miss that so often. We have the same bad eyesight. We look around and we say things are grim. There's no way to have victory here. And God says, want to bet? If it's his will, if it's his plan, if it's his purpose, it will be accomplished. You can count on that. 
But if we trust in ourselves and in human strength, if God is not in it, no matter how strong it is, it will fail. But don't worry, after Saul had that great uh, loss, he figured it out and he never made that mistake again. He followed the Lord completely every time. No, just a couple chapters later, he misses it again in a very similar way. So in chapter 15, the Lord gives clear instructions to, to Saul, all right? So much like when God sent his people to destroy all the people of Jericho, God was going uh, to send Israel to destroy the people of Amalek. Now, in Jericho, Israel was destroy everything and everyone. Everybody was, was supposed to die and all their stuff was supposed to be destroyed. God gives the same kind of command here against the people of Amalek. But in this case, instead of just one person messing up like in Jericho, everybody's in on it. The whole war party's in on it. Saul's in on it. So Samuel says, uh, go and destroy everything. God says, go and destroy everything because the battle belongs to the Lord. You don't got to keep any of it. But his eyes are on the wrong thing. He keeps looking at outward appearance. So what does he do? He keeps the best stuff back and he spares the king. Why does he spare the king? Because he's the king. You don't, want, you don't want kings being killing kings, right? So he spares the king. But, but God said to destroy everything. And look at where this picks up in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 9. And Saul said, and, and, but Saul and the people spared Agag, that's the king of Amalek, and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. How convenient! Man, talk about doing what's right in your own eyes. They had clear instruction, a clear command. They defied the instruction. They defied the command. They did what was right in their own eyes, and they suffered the consequences for it. Listen Listen to God's reply through Samuel in verse 22 through 23. And Samuel said, has the, Lord, has the Lord as great delight, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. It cost him. It cost him big time. Saul continued to do what was right in his own eyes. He continued to operate out of his old heart and not the heart that he had been given by the Spirit of God. And as a result, God is going to raise up a new king. Now, I want you to listen to Saul's apology. This is the biggest phony apology I've ever heard. Listen to this apology in verses 15 through 24. He apologizes twice, and his second apology completely undoes the first. Any husbands in here need to repent of that? Right, where your second apology undoes the first? All right, so listen to how this goes. Uh, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voices. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. All right, 
All right, good job. You feared, you feared people more than the Lord. Get that right. Don't do that anymore. It matters most what God says. Now let's see how it continues in verse 26 and following. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore it. That's desperation. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. This is a second apology. Yet, what? Honor me now before who? The elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Man, do you see how the second apology undid the first? At the end of the day, what matters to him? How he looks before the people. He just wants the people to know that he's, he's tried to get things right with the Lord. He just wants the elders to know that he sought Samuel and that God hasn't forsaken him. But what do we find out? Verse 35. Verse 35 says, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. In the end, this was the last thing Samuel was going to do for Saul. He says, you've been rejected. I'm done. I'm going to let you save face with the people one more time out of grace and mercy. But you have been turned over to your desires. You have been turned over to your bad vision. You have been turned over to a life that is, is committed to the way things you want them to be rather than the way God wants them to be. So here's some grace and mercy. You've got to deal with the mess. And the rest of Saul's reign is a disaster. The rest of Saul's reign is a disaster. And as we look at the life of David, we're going to see this struggle between somebody who is following the Lord and, and putting his trust in him and this other one who in his insecurity keeps fighting for what's been taken away from him. As I think about that, as I process, what do we do with this? What's our big takeaway from a message like this as we covered some 200 verses today? What, what do we do? Guys, the challenge is this. We cannot have eyes like Saul that are focused on the outward only, that are constantly evaluating uh, the material as, as a matter of whether or not God's in something or God isn't in something. We cannot look to the odds as the world might understand them to see whether or not we will be successful. We have to trust in the Lord. We have to have faith. We have to depend on him as the one who's going to secure the victory. We have to depend on him as the one who's going to carry out his will. So what I love about the story of Saul is it's, is it's two things, and this is what we need to remember. God gives us an opportunity to follow him. We all have that opportunity. Okay, We have this opportunity to follow him. Will we move forward in faith or will we move forward by doing things what, what is right in our own eyes? To do things God's way is a matter of faith. 
Do I believe that he's going to fulfill what he's called me to do? Do I believe he's going to provide for me in the ways that he's called me to go? If I doubt that he's going to provide for me, if I doubt that he's going to come through, then what am I going to do with God's commands? I'm going to modify them so that they can be accomplished according to my plan. And what's that going to do? Lead me into disobedience. Lead me to trust in myself. And lead me away from the Lord. It puts me in a position of independence. Faith, as we're going to see in the life of David, puts us in a position of dependence. I need him. The victory belongs to him. He gets the glory and not me. And that is what we call worship. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the way that you love us. We thank you for the way that you have given us this story to show us the difference between faith and poor vision. Help us, Lord, to believe the way we're going to see David did. Help us, Father, to have a heart like yours. Take away our stony hearts and give us a heart of flesh. Father, you set many hard and challenging things before us where the physical odds are stacked against us. Father, help us not to trust in chariots, but in you. Whatever these physical signs of power may be, whether it be doctors, whether it be bankers or investors, whatever the situation, Lord, help us not to trust in the things of men, but to trust in you as we walk forward in your plan for your glory and your purpose and not our own. It's in your name we pray. Amen.